Amen. Good morning. All right, so uh, inevitably, every time we begin a new series, um, I always get the question, why? Why did you choose this book? Uh, what's, what's your thought process? And I love that our congregation considers that. I love that you care about um, why a book is appropriate or why a book is uh, timely. So I wanted to give you some, uh, some reasons. Um, we spent a lot of time in, in heavy theology. We've uh, gone from, from uh, Proverbs, which is practical and wisdom literature, and we spent a lot of time in First and Second Timothy. Uh, and then we did a uh, quick series in, in Revelation. I never thought I'd say those words, but we did. Um, and I wanted, to, I wanted to transition into some narrative. Uh, it's been a while since we've done narrative. And uh, I love Ruth. Like, Ruth has been one of those, like, bucket list, back-of-my-mind books that I know that I, I would love to preach through one day. Um, and I love the story arc of Ruth. Because Ruth starts in the dumps. Like, it, it cannot get worse unless everyone dies. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. And the reader anticipates, well, we can only go up from here. And that's what the story does. The suspense continues to build. The, the anticipation continues to build. And it ends on, a, on its highest note. And so Ruth teaches us uh, that the Bible is never, like all the rest of Scripture, the Bible is never meant to be a complete history of the world. Or even a complete history of Israel. But it is a redemptive history of the people that the Lord is preparing for himself. So in that way, the book of Ruth, uh, in the book of Ruth, the Holy Spirit inspires an account that would otherwise seem insignificant. Because really, in the long history of Israel, who would care about these two widows? This probably happens every day somewhere. Somewhere, some guy dies and leaves a family. This could be any place, this could be any people, but why these people? Why tell this story? We'll get there in a moment. But I also love that this is a beautiful example of godly manhood and womanhood. Because in the day we live in, the confusing day of feminism and promiscuity and blurred gender roles, Ruth stands as a standard for feminine loyalty and humility. And in a day of emasculated and capable men, Boaz stands as a glowing example of Christ-like strength, confidence, and care. I, what I love about the book of Ruth is that men are men, women are women, and neither one of them are minimized. And we, we certainly need that in our day. But first and foremost... Why I love this book is because this little gospel story leads us to the gospel story. If you've been here for a while, we preach Christ in all of Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed to point us to the true and living God in the flesh. Jesus told us all the law, the prophets and the Psalms, are fulfilled in me. And so we preach Christ in every text. Sometimes it's a little, it's a little more work than others. But this one, it just jumps off the page. That's why uh, I, I love Ruth. So we're going to begin in chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to read just verses 1 through 5. I'm going to pray and then we'll walk through that together. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab. He and his wife... And his two sons. 
the name of this man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Machelon and Kilion. They were, they were Ephrathites uh, from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Lord, would you use our time together in your word to strengthen us, to build us up, to sanctify us, to conform us according to the image of Christ. Uh, As my brother Jesse prayed, Lord, wherever we are in sin, wherever we are trusting in idols, or wherever we are wandering after Moab, Lord, would you convict us. And wherever we are downtrodden and hurt and overwhelmed by our own darkness, Lord, would you encourage us and lift us up. In both instances, would we look to Christ and his sufficiency? Would we look to the perfect plan of our loving God and Father? Would we rest on the powerful provision of the Spirit? Because you are a God who is faithful. You are a God who is always faithful. Your people ebb and flow in faithfulness and unfaithfulness, in wickedness and in righteousness, but you, God, do not change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our solid rock, and we can always come to you and rely on you in times of trouble. Lord, help us especially when we read a text like this to look to you, our light in our present darkness. And we pray that this time would be glorifying to you and edifying to us, that your spirit would prepare the ears of the hearers, that he would work through my voice and that your word would accomplish its purpose for your name and your glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So when you open a book like Ruth, there is a temptation to just gloss over the little historical details in the beginning. Uh, Often, because we don't understand the people, the places, we have not been schooled in the geography, um, we can tend to just read right through it. And you could read, read through these details, okay, I know the places, I, I know the people, but let's get into the meat of the story. But this introduction is so full of context that you have to understand to understand the book of Ruth. So uh, we're going to land here and lean in for a little bit this morning. Uh, the first thing, we looked at this last week. Uh, we spent an, an entire week just doing an, an overview of Judges. In the days when the Judges ruled, if you don't know the context of the book of Judges, that doesn't mean anything to you. But like we talked about last week, the, 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 ta- the uh, time of Judges is a downward spiral in the toilet of history. It gets worse and worse and worse. As they are flushed right into the sewer. And Luth, or Ruth is in that context. And she stands in complete contrast, gradually rising in hope toward restoration. Everything you need to know about the Judges, you just have to look over to the previous page in your Bible. If you're open to Ruth... Probably the page before it is the book of Judges. Look at the last verse of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Anytime we do what is right in our own eyes, it is not good. 
That is the context of the book of Ruth. Also, these are people who are just getting into the land. God gave them promises in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to look at uh, quite a few of them this morning. He promised his people that if you follow me, if you keep my commandments, I will bless you, I will keep you, I will prosper you. But if you don't, I will curse you. I will curse your wombs, I will curse your family, I will curse your, your land until you repent and come back to me. And so as we begin, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. I think that's a coincidence? I don't think so. This is not just a historical statement or a political statement. It's a theological statement. Let me show you why. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 15. Here is the warning, the curses that are to come. Uh, Turn there because we're going to jump. It won't be on the screen, but we'll jump into chapter 30 as well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, this is Deuteronomy 28, 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all the commandments and all the statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and your young flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. This describes the time that Elimelech and his family find themselves in. Turn over to chapter 30. But here's here's the remedy. Here's what God promises if they turn from their wicked ways, if they turn from what is doing what is right in their own eyes. Uh, Picking up in verse 1 of chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, this is not an if, but a when. This is going to happen because you're wicked. And when all these things come upon you, there are, there are four steps here. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have sent before you, number two, you will call them to mind among the, the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Number three, and then you return to the Lord, you and your children, and obey his voice that I command you with all your heart, with all your soul. Number four, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. Israel, this is going to happen. You're going to sin. You're going to remember my words. Then you're going to return to the Lord, and not just halfway, but with all your heart. And when you do, then I will return my favor. Let's jump down to verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and you may live. This is the goal that God's people are solely after him. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and your enemies, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I commanded you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of the cattle, and in the fruit of the ground. There's famine in the land. We can put two and two together. You are not being faithful to me. You're doing what is right in your own eyes, and I am trying to get your attention. This is the context we find ourselves in. Don't forget these details until, uh, as we go on. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers. Verse 10, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. What happens when there's famine in the land? What happens when there's difficulty? Turn to the Lord. 
but the people are not turning to the Lord. Verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not hard for you. It's hard for our flesh, but it's not hard to do. Neither is it far off. Uh, and then finally, when I jump down to verse 15, see, I have set before you today life and good versus death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering into uh, to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but you are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. Okay, keep that in mind. When the first character in our story begins to make decisions for his family. So, again, we're in this very dark period. All of the judgments and the curses of the broken covenant are falling on the people of God. But now we get Ruth. These two unassuming widows, in complete contrast. Everything that was set up in Judges, we're meant to read Ruth after Judges. Because after you read Judges, like, man, this is ridiculous. This, the, the depravity breaks your heart. We mentioned earlier in intercessory prayer um, that in a uh, Bible study, a woman starts reading Judges, and she gets halfway through, and she's like, I don't want to read this anymore. I don't want to have to read Judges. I don't want to come face to face with this. You need to. You need to understand the darkness of our sinful condition. Why? Because when God shines a spotlight of his work in the people in the midst of darkness, it stands out. You ever, like, go out in your backyard at night and see one of those police helicopters that is chasing after a suspect? This is how the Bible is, is written. It is a world of darkness. Again, it's not meant to be a history of the entire world. It is a history of God's redeem, redemption of his people. And that spotlight follows one subject, the elect of God throughout history. And it's not a straight line. He's jumping over walls. He's, he's trying to run away from the Lord, but the Lord's providence the grace of God is on the people of God shining a light where everything around it is dark and the bright the, the light follows what is important and this is how the Bible handles redemptive history so now when we zoom into Bethlehem okay we already understand the uh, context of judges why is Bethlehem important here so Bethlehem in Hebrew means house of bread anyone get the irony here there's a famine the house of bread is breadless. And if you read the book of Judges, Bethlehem is at the center of a horrendous controversy. In the last four chapters, last five chapters, chapters 17 through 21, they're sparked by a man from Bethlehem. There is a rape, murder, and dismemberment of his concubine. And then... There is a forcible capture of women from another tribe to give husbands to everyone who they do not slaughter. That's how the book of Judges ends. And in complete contrast, we see two women in the book of Ruth. Twice in this passage, Bethlehem and Judah. Now, if you know your redemptive history, you know Judah's role. 
when Jacob is on his deathbed and he blesses his sons, Judah is promised the, the scepter, the throne of the king. This is where the king is supposed to come from. This is his tribe. And it's not looking so well. And then you've got a man. Uh, names are important in this passage. His name is Elimelech. Now I say it that way because that's the Hebrew pronunciation, but it's important. His, his name is two words. Eli, my God, and Melech, king. His name means my God is king. He is a, a type of the people of Israel in this story. The man whose name is my God is king chooses a worse situation out of a bad situation. He chooses to sojourn in the land of Moab. We'll get to Moab in just a moment, but what is a sojourner? We've, we've looked at this a lot in, in different contexts. But he is seeking to take up residence as a foreigner. Not in the, not in the, the land of Moab, but in the country. This is the, the countryside. They are living alone out in the fields. They are, they are sojourning in the land of Moab. And again, if you don't know all these, all these details, that doesn't mean much. But if you know Israel's history, Moab should jump off the page to you as well. If you don't know the all right, this is scandal upon scandal upon scandal. If you don't know the history of Moab, let me give you the, uh, the high notes or the low notes. Lot, who is not a guy known for making good decisions, trains his daughters who are not women known for making good decisions. These two daughters don't have husbands, and they come up with the fantastic idea that we should get our father drunk and make him the father of our children. Genesis 19.37. It'll be on the screen. The firstborn, Lot's first daughter, bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Okay, so born out of the most uh, heinous incest you will ever find. But it doesn't stop there. When you read through the book of Numbers, the, the Moabites are a, a, a constant thorn in the side of Israel. Chapter 22 and, and, and 23, they won't support Israel as they go through the land. More so, Balak, the king of Moab, tries to convince Balaam to curse the nation of Israel. He tries many ways. And God shows Balak how much of a fool he is because God speaks more wisdom through a donkey than he does a king. But he tries again and again and again to get the prophet to curse Israel. If you go on, chapter 25, this is when the Moabite women seduce the men of Israel to whore after the god Baal. These people all along are a symbol of perversion, of idolatry and hatred of the people of God. And so when you get into Deuteronomy 23, that'll be on the screen, but you can turn there, uh, there's a prohibition and you can understand why. Deuteronomy 23, beginning in verse 2. No one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite, no, Bob, no Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. 
But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. That's not a suggestion. That's a pretty hard line in the sand. So if we just skip over verse 1, when we get to verse 2, you won't realize the gravity of the situation. Verse 2, the name of the man, Elimelech, uh, my God is king. And then the name of his wife, Naomi, means my joy. And the name of, of his two sons, uh, you will not find these in any baby name books. Um, Maklon means weakling, and Kilion means failing. These are foreshadows of things to come. They were Ephrathites from uh, Ephraim, from Bethlehem in Judea. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. Okay, uh, let's look at a couple things. Bethlehem in Judea is again repeated. Why? Bible students, why are things repeated in the Bible? Because we need to pay attention. We need to know these things are important. They left the land of promise, Bethlehem and Judea. They left the land of the kings of Israel. They left the land of the king of the world for Moab, the land of cursing. They left the favored people for the forbidden people. And what's interesting, when we go further in chapter 1, the rest of Bethlehem's still there. They're like, Naomi, we thought you died. What are you doing here? This man, Elimelech, does what is right in his own eyes. The evil of Judges prepares us for the hope of Ruth. This little town now has a spotlight shined on it. Shined on it. It's surrounded by darkness. This little town should uh, come to mind around a certain time of year. But it was important well before that. 1 Samuel 16.1, this little town was the birth of Israel's greatest king. 1 Samuel 16, 1, birthplace. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected uh, him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. This is an important city. Now, this, this city, shrouded in darkness, there's a spotlight shine on it. And again, the, the, the light comes back in the next book. We're going we're gonna to continue after Ruth in the lineage of David. In the city of Bethlehem, the house of bread. But one day, we know that this same city, the light of the world will shine on. Angels will sing. He will be born of a virgin. He will grow up to be the bread of life. And he will save his people from their sins because he is the king of kings. In a time with no king... In a man who rejects God as king, God will bring about the line, of, the line of Judah and the Lion of Judah for his own glory. But that's not where we are yet. They went to Moab and remained there. So we know Elimelech as a man who is disobedient. Instead of crying out to the Lord, instead of listening to the, the, the warnings and the promises of God, he runs to Moab, who God warned would lead the people astray. He's an opportunist. He's seeking comfort. Um, and he really is not the hero, hero of the story. So we won't be too surprised when he's dead in the next verse. 
But before we judge, let's examine ourselves. How often have you been motivated by short-term comfort or gain? How often do we assume that what God wants for me is what I think will make me most happy? God wants me to be comfortable. And I'm not really comfortable here, but I know the grass is greener over there with those pagans. How often have we, even as believers, gone and camped in the countryside of Moab? I'm not going to join them. I'm not going to worship their gods. I'm just going to hang out on the, on the fringes and experience all of their, the, the, their blessings. Because I don't trust the Lord to bless me. How many times have I seen a man make decisions for his family, quote unquote, when I know it's just a selfish, pragmatic thing he wants to do? And what's best for him. And what he ultimately wants. And there are consequences for his family in those decisions. How about for us? When we say that we are Christian, what we're saying is that we're saying Christ is my king. That's our name. Christ is my king. And so when we make decisions, do your decisions bear that out? The where you go for comfort to where you go for provision, to where you go for security, does that bear it out that Christ is your king? Does what we trust reflect that? Are we more often trusting the kings and the provisions of this world rather than trusting who we call our king? And when we say Christ is my king and we don't trust him and we don't live like that, what has it done to our, what does it do to our witness? Any of you ever been embarrassed by an unbeliever who, who reminds you how Christians ought to act? You ever been corrected by a believer? I thought Christians didn't talk like that. I thought Christians didn't do things like that. That's convicting. When we say Christ is our king, do we live like it? This book causes us to examine ourselves. And so... Getting into verse 3, Elimelech uh, leads his family into this forbidden pagan land, and he dies. But notice that there's a, a shift. Before, it is Elimelech and the name of his wife, Naomi. What does verse 3 say? And Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, dies. He has lost his standing in the family. He no longer is the main character. She now is the, the head of the family. He has failed. He has died because he didn't follow in faithfulness to the Lord. And now it is her family and her sons. And he is dead. So, you would think this would persuade them to go back. Nope. The sons took Moabite wives, Orpha and, and Ruth. We don't know much uh, about what Ruth means. Orpah means neck. Some people think it means she's stiff-necked. Uh, you'll, you'll get that later in the, in the chapter. Um, but here's what's important. They lived there for 10 years. Now, this isn't in the text, but you'll notice when they come back and everyone dies, it's just Ruth and Naomi. They were there for 10 more years and had no children. This is also another sign of the curse. That if you do not follow me, if you do not obey me, I will curse the fruit of your land and of your womb. So they took wives. 
As you can imagine, if Moab is, is wicked, taking wives is not a good thing. And the Hebrew is specific here. They didn't get married. They took wives. They grabbed something that did not belong to them and should not belong to them and, um, and covenanted with it. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. This is why he didn't want them to marry into uh, the, the foreign nations. We've already seen this in Judges. What happens when they begin to flirt and mingle with the people of the land? Begin to normalize the gods and the desires of the land. And they lead them astray. Elimelech is led astray. The sons are led astray. They uh, did not obey. But you know, what's, you know what else is interesting in God's provision? Even in our unfaithfulness and our wickedness, God still redeems the circumstances. He preserved the line of his son, and his son would not be born in Moab. He did not allow any of the sons of Israel, any of the tribe of Judah, to be born in Moab. The Lord's providence brought them back to Bethlehem, where Ruth would have a child, who would have a child, who would have a child, who would have David, who would have a child, who would have a child, and on and on, who would have Christ. The Lord is merciful and redeems even our disobedience. So there's another lesson here. Not always, but often, the difficulties in our own lives are a result of our own selfish choices. How many times have we choose, chose the easy route, taken on the things of the world and bearing the consequences because we don't trust God? How many times, on the other side, have we trusted God and he has given us more than we could ever ask or ever imagine? This book stares us in the face as a stark example of being obedient. And if you don't understand the context, a lot of this falls flat. So, now we get to verse 5. And both Maclon and Kilion died. All right. Um, weakness and failing are, are dead. No surprise there. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Notice the last word here. Um, when you study Hebrew, whatever is right up front and whatever is right at the end is emphasized. The last word in this section is husband. This is the last they think about him. This is his, his impact is, is, is done because he's done enough damage. But here's the other thing that's, that, that's amazing. All the men have died and, and, and are forgotten from this point on. There are consequences for the actions of these men. But God does not hold the women responsible for those actions. Men, there is a call and a challenge on us. When we do not lead well, when we make decisions by our own selfish devices, when we do what is ultimately good for us and not care about the results to our family, there are consequences. And at the same time, the Lord is compassionate for the weaker vessels. And the Lord has a plan for Ruth, who really should not have any inheritance with the people of God. All right. So now what? You've got two women left at the end of this, this section. Because outside of God's grace, this is a hopeless situation. 
it's not like they go into Moab and, and apply for welfare. That didn't exist. They would probably, they'd probably be forcibly taken as some pagans' wives. And it's not like they can just go back to Bethlehem and start a business or get a job. It doesn't work that way. If Naomi and Ruth do not get remarried, they would be dependent on charity. They would be destined to live in poverty all of their days. And if you are reading this as a Jew in the time of David, and you've only read this far, you have not read the the rest of the book, and if you're a woman reading this, this is heartbreaking. This is hopeless. This is impossible. There's no king. There's lawlessness, there's disobedience, there's barrenness, there's famine, there's death, there's loneliness, no home, no hope. So what do we do with a text like this? This is not a happy ending. You might have noticed there's no mention of God in this text at all. And it seems like God has completely abandoned them. There is no light in this passage. This is a passage of darkness upon darkness upon darkness, and it just keeps growing. But you know what I love about the book of Ruth? It doesn't end here. It begins here. And that's what makes it such a compelling story. This is the intentional cliffhanger in the series opener. And this is like the gospel. We must see the hopelessness of our circumstances. We must see our desperate need to cry out to the Lord because everything we try doesn't work. Everything we do leads to death and destruction. But even when it is just Ruth, Naomi, and hope that the Lord will provide, that is all the hope that is needed. He brings about often the hopelessness of our circumstances to call us to look to God. This is often what he does in his people. He strips away everything that we hold dear as prodigals. We run away from him. We cast off his blessings and we say, I can make it on my own. Like the little kid who runs away from, from, from home, packing his favorite toys like I did at five. Then realize I can't eat toys. It's so silly. But that's what we do when we run away from God. And he says, okay, I'm going to let you run away as a prodigal. You think it's better the grass is greener in Moab? Moab? Go for it. I will make you cry out to me. Because when everything fails, it shows us our great need for him. And only then can we appreciate his great plan and provision for us. And that's what makes Ruth such an encouragement to the church. Because it reminds us, like Jesus told us, what is impossible with man is is possible with God. And it is only possible with God. We serve a God who specializes in the impossible and the hopeless for his glory. Abraham's 100 years old with no kids. Impossible. Israel is enslaved in Egypt with not a sword or a gun or or a helicopter to their names. Impossible, but God delivers them. David stands before Goliath, a boy with a few stones. Impossible without the strength of God. We can go on and on and on. You get the idea. And by the grace of God, we love Ruth because Ruth's story is our story. Or 
orphans and widows without hope have no choice but to trust God. And we'll see this next week that in the very next verse, we hear of the Lord visiting Israel. There's hope. There's light. But we end here in verse 5 for that reminder of the darkness and the hopelessness. Because what gives God more glory than giving help to two helpless widows? What gives God more glory than sending his son through the line of an unclean Moabite? That is impossible for God to be glorified in that with man. But with God, he works that out for his glory. The book of Ruth begins with this deep, dark thunderstorm. But you ever seen that little ray of light that just peeks through the clouds? And it looks awesome. It's stunning. It lights up everything. It draws your attention to it. You can't look away. This is what our God does. This is what redemption is. Is the bright light shining in the darkness. And I love the book of Ruth because it could not be further from the style and content of our last book. If you were here through Revelation, it looks nothing like Revelation. But the message is exactly the same. Yes, it will be dark. But take courage, because God is good, and there's a great king that is coming. And you can trust God. Uh, I'm really enjoying uh, Ian Duguid's commentary, the Reformed Expository Commentary on Esther and Ruth. And I was going to try to summarize this paragraph, but he wrote it so well, I'm just going to quote the whole thing. It should be up on your screen as well. Uh, I love how he summarizes this section. He says, the book of Ruth addresses us as people who are just like Elimelech and Naomi. Like them, we often find that the grass seems greener in the fields on the Moabite side of the fence. The temptation to abandon the bread of heaven for this world's provisions is very strong, especially during the times when the bread of heaven seems scarce. The option of choosing the land of compromise, in this case Moab, instead of faithfully Uh, Persevering by faith in the land of promise is a constant theme in the Old Testament. The food that the unpromised land offers seems very real, very tangible, and easily available. Man, isn't that the truth? In contrast to the promises of God, which constantly test our faith and our trust. That last line, isn't that what it's like living in the world, brothers and sisters? The food that the unpromised land offers seems very real. Very tangible and easily available in contrast to the promises of God, which constantly test our faith and our trust. So, let's spend some time in application. This is such a practical book. And so every one of us at some time, some of you probably more often, have wondered and asked the question, will light shine in my present darkness? Is there any hope? Can God redeem even this? That was exactly the question that the weeping women asked when they stood before the cross, when they stood before the tomb. Can God redeem even this when it seems like nothing is going right? In loss, in loneliness, in hopelessness, in darkness. We are tempted to say, and we often say, where is God in all this? Because he hasn't shown himself to me. Maybe God's forgotten about me. 
Maybe God doesn't love me anymore. Why? Because it's easy to read a book like this when you have read the whole book. And you look back and say, well, what were they worried about? Imagine Ruth and Naomi when they don't know the end of the story. Their providers and their protectors are dead. They're in a land of pagans who hate the people of God. What do we do? What hope is there? They didn't know the end of the story. But then there's a promise of good news in verse 6. The Lord is making provision for his people. There's bread back in the land. This is the gospel. We don't know the end of the story, but there is always a call for good news. And how many of us, we don't want to face our sorrow. We don't like that God hides his providence from us. This is what theologians call dark providence. God is sovereign over all things. Where is God while this is going on? The same place he was last week and he will be next week. Sovereign over all the circumstances of our life, even the dark ones, so that he can shine his light on it. We don't want him to hide it from us. God, we want to know the end of the story. Tell me what's going to come next and then I'll trust you. Yeah, right. If we knew what was coming next, we wouldn't have to trust him. We would trust the plan. We wouldn't trust the planner. We would look forward to the gift and not the giver. But this book shows us like it shows Ruth and Naomi. We are going to have to go back to Bethlehem in faith. We've got no other choice. But there is a God who provides for his people. And when they return to him, when they repent, when they come back, Like every prodigal, he welcomes them with open arms, kills the fatted calf, opens up the cupboards, and feeds them and blesses them. And he does in this book, but he does it in increments. The the, the tension and the good news builds to show how God has been planning and providing for this all along. So brothers and sisters, when there is a time in your life when you say, can God redeem even this? Can he bring light even in this darkness? Yes, he can. And yes, he will. And this is not a prosperity gospel. This is a promise gospel. Our God is a God who gives good things. We serve the God who spoke and there was light. He is a God whose pattern is to bring light out of darkness. The Bible begins with a God who brings light to a dark world. The old covenant begins with that. The new covenant begins with the light of the world, coming into the world. In the beginning was God. In the beginning, God, he was with God. In the, excuse me, in the beginning was God and the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He is the light of the world coming into the world. The light of men. We know the true light who shines in darkness. We know the light who came into the world and most of his people, born in Bethlehem, rejected him. But that light shines. And on those he shines and who his favor rests, that light continues to shine. And it never stops shining. I love 1 John 1.5. 1 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Just because God is sovereign over darkness does not mean that he is darkness. He uses darkness to contrast how amazing his glorious light is. We can trust that in our situation, he never forgets about his people. He is always preparing the circumstances of our lives for our good and his glory. He takes our broken and he makes it beautiful. We love the book of Ruth because it's the up from nothing, rags to riches story. And the gospel is the ultimate rags to riches story. He takes the hopeless, the widows and orphans with filthy rags. And on the cross, he gives them his riches. They have nothing on their own. They are in complete darkness without hope. But a hope has come. Born of a virgin, taken on flesh, born in Bethlehem. That his people would remain in his light forever. I want to close with this idea uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And then help us prepare for the table. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. We'll spend more time in 2 Corinthians 4 next week. But the gospel is seen in terms of light and darkness. For our God, our God, my God is king, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This table that we're about to approach in a moment reminds us that we now walk in light. That we are people of light because God has shown the light of Christ into our hearts. This is not a table for people who would rather be in Moab than in Bethlehem. Who would rather be in the house of cursing than the house of blessing. This is not a table for people who are trusting in themselves. This This is a table for people who trust in the light. And let me just help you out here for a moment. This is not a table for people who have all the light within themselves, who think everything needs to be sunshine and roses, I need to be perfect and put myself together to come before this table. The prerequisite for coming before this table is knowing that in and of myself I have nothing but darkness. But the Son of God came and laid down his life for me to redeem me out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a feast for the people of the kingdom of light. The promised body and blood of Christ given to us. This is not a table of our worthiness, but his faithfulness. He is our light. And if you are in Christ, this table is for you. So I'm going to give you uh, a few moments to prepare your mind and hearts. Uh, Brett's going to lead us to the table and then uh, direct us to the playground.